Section 17 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 5, Part 3. The next event that engaged public attention was the fall of Sunderland. This perfidious minister was denounced, in full counsel to the king, of betraying his secrets to his enemies. James had before been warned of him by the envoy of Louis the Fourteenth. Lady Sunderland flew to the queen and besought her protection for her husband, protesting that he was falsely accused. The queen never interfered in cases which she considered out of her province. Sunderland tried to shake her resolution by throwing himself at her feet and pleading the merits of his conversion to the Church of Rome. But Mary Beatrice had sufficient reason to suspect that which was afterwards used by his friends as an excuse for his popery, that he had turned Catholic, the better to deceive the king and to serve the Protestant cause. While he was yet closeted with her majesty, he was apprised by a message from the king that he was superseded in his office by the Earl of Middleton. A partial change in other departments followed, but James's new cabinet was feeble and inefficient. On the 27th, an express brought the news that the Dutch armada had been scattered, and all but annihilated, in a mighty storm. James and the Catholic party suffered themselves to hope, and, deceived by William's purposed exaggeration of the mischief, to pause. Seven days served to repair all damage, and to get the fleet in order again. William sailed a second time from Helvetsluys, November 1st. On the 2nd, the fortunate Protestant East Wind, as it was called, swelled his sails. His descent was expected to be on the coast of Yorkshire, but led by the traitor Herbert, for traitor every man is, who under any pretext, pilots a foreign armament to the shores of his own country. After steering north about twelve hours, he changed his course, and passing the royal fleet of England in the Downs, entered Torbay, and landed on the 5th. The conduct of Lord Dartmouth, by whom the fleet was commanded, in permitting the Dutchmen to pass without firing one shot for the honor of the British flag, is still matter of debate. His own statement, that the sea came so heavy and the tide fell so cross, with other technical difficulties, was admitted by the royal seamen, his master, to be reasonable excuses. The first intelligence of the landing of the Prince of Orange was brought to James by an officer who had ridden with such speed that before he could conclude his narrative, he fell exhausted at the feet of the king, a startling omen according to the temper of the times. Yet William was received at first, but coldly in the west. The mayor of Exeter, though unsupported by a single soldier, boldly arrested the errant courier of the Dutch stadtholder and shut the gates of the town against his troops at their approach, and the bishop fled. It was nine days before any person of consequence joined the Dutch prince. The Episcopalian party in Scotland became more fervent in their loyalty as the crisis darkened. Their bishops presented an address, on the 3rd of November, to King James, assuring him, in language that must have been very cheering, to the drooping spirits of himself and his consort that they and their clergy prayed that his son, the Prince of Wales, might inherit the virtues of his august and serene parents, and that God, in his mercy, might still preserve and deliver his majesty by giving him the hearts of his subjects and the necks of his enemies. 
a little of the energy and promptitude that had distinguished the early days of james duke of york would probably have enabled king james to maintain his throne but the season of knightly enterprise was over with him he had begun life too early and like most persons who have been compelled by circumstances to exert the courage and self-possession of men in the tender years of childhood james appears to have suffered a premature decay of those faculties that were precociously forced into action at seventeen james stuart would have met the crisis triumphantly at fifty-seven it overpowered him father petre persuaded him to remain in the metropolis when he ought to have assumed a threatening demeanor he urged his majesty to observe the excited state of the rabble and to consider what would be the fate of his wife and son if he abandoned them james had appointed salisbury plain for the rendezvous of his forces and thither he ought to have proceeded in person instead of bestowing his attention on the defences of his metropolis the deep-laid treachery of his favourite churchill in the meantime began to work in the desertion of lord cornbury who attempted to carry off three regiments to the prince of orange only sixty troopers followed him it is true but in consequence of this movement lord feversham fancying the prince of orange was upon his outposts ordered the troops to fall back and a general panic communicated itself to the army an express brought this ill news to whitehall just as the king was going to sit down to dinner but calling only for a piece of bread and a glass of wine he immediately summoned his council to meet he had better have ordered his horses and set out to encourage his soldiers his timorous or treacherous advisers persuaded him not to hazard his person till he was better assured of the temper of his troops and thus three more precious days were lost james having been assured that though lord cornbury was the first deserter he was not the only traitor in his service nor yet in his household determined to make one of those frank appeals to the honour of his officers which often elicits a generous burst of feeling he called all the generals and colonels of his reserve force together and told them that if there were any among them unwilling to serve him he gave them free leave to surrender their commissions and depart whithersoever they pleased for he was willing to spare them the dishonour of deserting as lord cornbury had done they all appeared deeply moved and replied unanimously that they would serve him to the last drop of their blood the duke of grafton and my lord churchill says james were the first that made this attestation and the first who broke it if religious scruples had been the true cause as churchill afterwards pretended of his deserting his royal benefactor why did he not candidly say so on this occasion and resign his commission instead of deceiving him and by professing devotion to his service he was not contented with deserting his unfortunate king in the hour of need he designed to have the merit of betraying him it was not till the seventeenth of november that james set out for the army fears for the safety of his son so completely haunted his mind that he could not venture to leave him in london even under the care of his fond mother the queen he therefore determined to send the infant prince to portsmouth and from thence to france and that he should travel under his own escort the first day's journey this was a melancholy parting especially to the queen who never feared danger when the king was with her and had all her life chosen rather to share his hazards and his hardships 
than to be in the greatest ease and security without him this being now denied her and he obliged to part from her on a dangerous expedition and the prince her son at the same time sent from her into a foreign country while she was left in a mutinous and discontented city it is not to be wondered if she begged the king to be cautious what steps he made in such suspected company not knowing but the ground on which he thought to stand with most security might sink from under his feet the king recommended the care of the city to the lord mayor and left the management of affairs of state in the hands of a council consisting of the lord chancellor and the lords preston arundel Bellasis, and godolphin no power was left in the hands of the queen father petre had fled the country this day that is november seventeenth at two writes the ellis correspondent his majesty marched for windsor with the prince of wales they will be to-morrow at basingstoke or andover the queen is still here this is a melancholy time with us all james and his infant boy slept at windsor for the last time that night the next morning he sent the babe to portsmouth with his nurse under the care of the marquis and marchioness of powis and an escort of scotch and irish dragoons his majesty arrived at salisbury on the evening of the nineteenth the records of the queen's proceedings when left alone at whitehall bereft both of her husband and her child during nine days of terror and suspense are singularly barren if the letters which she wrote to the king at that anxious period should ever be forthcoming they would form most valuable and deeply interesting links in the history of that momentous time for she writes with the truthful simplicity of a child on the twenty-second of november lord clarendon says in the afternoon i waited on the queen she having appointed me this time by mrs dawson i expressed myself as well as i could on my son's that is lord cornbury's desertion she was pleased to make me very gracious answers her majesty discoursed very freely of public affairs saying how much the king was misunderstood by his people that he intended nothing but a general liberty of conscience which she wondered could be opposed that he always intended to support the religion established being well satisfied of the loyalty of the church of england i took the liberty to tell her majesty that liberty of conscience could never be granted but by act of parliament the queen did not like what i said and so interrupted me with saying she was very sorry my brother and i had joined in the late petition and said the king was angry at it i justified myself by giving my reasons for so doing but finding her uneasy i ended my discourse with begging her majesty to use her interest in doing good offices and to be a means of begetting confidence between the king and his people towards which she might be a happy instrument the news came that day that the king had bled much at the nose and again by express on the twenty-fourth that the bleeding continued the alarm and distress of the queen may easily be imagined for the king was not subject to those sorts of attacks and he was precisely the same age at which the late king his brother died of apoplexy the hemorrhage commenced immediately after he had held a council of war on the night of his arrival at salisbury and could not be stopped till a vein was breathed in his arm the next day when he was on horseback viewing the plains to choose a place for his camp it returned upon him with greater violence and continued to do so at intervals for the next three days 
he was let blood four times that week james calls this a providential bleeding because it incapacitated him from fulfilling his intention of going to visit his advance guard at warminster with lord churchill and a party of officers who had entered into a confederacy to betray him into the hands of the prince of orange by taking him to the outposts of the foe instead of his own and if any attempt were made for his rescue to shoot or stab him as he sat in the chariot although says the duke of berwick i would wish to hide the faults that were committed by my uncle lord churchill i cannot pass over in silence a very remarkable circumstance the king meant to go from salisbury in my coach to visit the quarter that was commanded by major-general kirk but a prodigious bleeding at the nose which came all at once on his majesty prevented him if he had gone it seems measures were taken by churchill and kirk to deliver him to the prince of orange but this accident averted the blow a greater peril impended over the unfortunate prince from physical causes within than the most subtle design which treason could devise against him distress of mind combined with bodily fatigue had thrown his blood into such a state of fermentation that the operation of the heart was affected and he was in imminent danger of suffusion of the brain at the moment when nature made good her powerful struggle in his favour and the torrents of blood which burst from his nostrils like the opening of a safety valve in a steam engine that is labouring under too high a pressure averted a sudden and fatal result the excess loss of blood left king james in a state of death-like exhaustion while the recurrence of the hemorrhage every time he attempted to rouse himself for either bodily or mental exertion bore witness of his unfitness for either and produced despondency which physiologists would not have attributed to want of courage in a man who had formerly given great proofs of personal intrepidity but to the prostration of the animal system it was at this melancholy crisis that churchill the creature of his bounty and the confidant of his most secret counsels deserted to the prince of orange with the duke of grafton and other officers of his army this example was quickly followed by others james was bewildered paralyzed the warning cry there is treachery o Hazaya," seemed forever ringing in the ear of the unfortunate king and he knew not whom to trust in an evil hour he fell back with his infantry to andover there he was deserted by his son-in-law prince george of denmark and the duke of ormond both of whom had supped with him and maintained a flattering semblance up to the last moment mary beatrice meantime had continued to hold her lonely court at whitehall surrounded by timid priests and terrified women and to do her best to appear cheerful and to conciliate cold friends and treacherous foes a slight skirmish that took place between the advance guards of the royal army and those of the prince of orange in which the victory had been claimed by both was magnified into a report of an engagement in which the king had been defeated and that he was retreating to the metropolis the excitement and terror caused by these rumours were extreme all the people of condition who were in town flocked to the palace to learn news filling every gallery and antechamber in vain did those about court endeavour to assume an air of cheerfulness the queen never had the faculty of concealing her emotions and when her heart was torn with conflicting apprehensions for the safety of her husband and her child 
her pale cheeks and tearful eyes were referred to as indications of fresh misfortunes by those who halting between two opinions were willing to choose the side which played a winning game there is some reason to believe that the queen made a fruitless appeal to the feelings of the princess anne on the evening of the twenty-fifth that a discussion took place upon this agitating subject rests on the following circumstance recorded in one of lord dartmouth's marginal notes on burnett the princess pretended that she was out of order on some expostulations that had passed between her and the queen in a visit she received from her that night therefore she said she would not be disturbed till she rang her bell this was clearly a feint to gain time and forms no specific accusation against the queen only implying that there had been a scene in which her own temper had been ruffled next morning her servants after waiting two hours longer than usual for her rising and finding the bed open and her highness gone ran screaming to lady dartmouth's lodgings which were next to anne's and told her that the priests had murdered the princess from thence they went to the queen and old mrs buss asked her in a very rude manner what she had done with their mistress the queen answered very gravely she supposed their mistress was where she liked to be but did assure them she knew nothing of her and did not doubt they would hear of her again very soon this did not prevent them from spreading a report all over whitehall that the princess had been murdered the nurse and lady clarendon kept up the excitement by running about like persons out of their senses exclaiming the papists have murdered the princess and when they met any of the queen's servants asked them what they had done with her royal highness which observes king james considering the ferment people were in and how susceptible they were of an ill impression against the queen might have caused her to be torn in pieces by the rabble but god preserved her from their malice which was not able to make this contrivance more than one day's wonder for the next morning it was known whither the princess had gone a day or two after a letter which had been left by the princess on her toilet addressed to the queen appeared in print the delay in its delivery might have been of fatal consequences to mary beatrice at a time when so much pains were taken to inflame the minds of the people against her when king james returned dispirited to his metropolis the first news that greeted him there was the desertion of his daughter anne the blow was fatal to his cause as a king but it was as a father that he felt it god help me exclaimed he bursting into tears my own children have forsaken me in my distress he entered his palace with those bitter drops of agony still overflowing his cheek crying oh if mine enemies only had cursed me i could have borne it like byron's wounded eagle the arrow that transfixed his heart had been fledged from his own wing lady oglethorpe who held an office in the royal household told sir john raresby in confidence that the king was so deeply affected when the princess anne went away that it disordered his understanding a melancholy elucidation of his subsequent conduct which cannot be explained on any rational principle james had all along been haunted with the idea that the life of the infant prince was in jeopardy this fear returned upon him now with redoubled force tis my son they aim at wrote the agitated monarch to the earl of dartmouth and tis my son i must endeavour to preserve whatsoever becomes of me 
Therefore, I conjure you to assist Lord Dover in getting him sent away in the yachts, as soon as wind and weather will permit, for the first port they can get to in France, and that with as much secrecy as may be. And see that trusty men may be put in the yachts, that he may be exposed to no other danger but that of the sea, and know I shall look upon this as one of the greatest pieces of service you can do me. James wrote four times with agonizing pertinacity to Lord Dartmouth, reiterating not only his commands but his prayers, for him to facilitate the departure of the prince from England. This feverish state of anxiety about his boy rendered James regardless of the fatal progress of the Prince of Orange, who continued to advance, unopposed but cautiously. Neither he nor anyone else who had known the James Stuart of former years could believe that he would abandon his realm without a blow. What strange change had come over the spirit of the chivalrous aide-de-camp of Turin, the gallant sailor prince, who had connected his name so proudly with the naval glories of Great Britain? What says the most accomplished statesman and moralist of modern times? He who made wise by the philosophy of history and the study of mankind, guides the destinies of a mighty empire by holding the balance of a faithful hand amidst conflicting parties. When we consider the life of a man, we none know what he may become till we see the end of his career. Mental anguish had unhinged the mind of the unfortunate king, his bodily strength having been previously prostrated by circumstances that sufficiently indicate the disarranged state of the brain at that momentous crisis. He summoned his council, his peers, spiritual and temporal. He appealed to their loyalty. He asked for advice and succor, and they answered in the spirit of Job's comforters, that he had no one to blame but himself. They told him of his faults, but gave him no pledges of assistance. The populace had been infuriated by reports, artfully circulated, that Irish regiments were to be employed in a general massacre of the Protestants, and they began to attack the houses of the Roman Catholics in the city. Terrors, for the safety of his queen, next possessed the tottering mind of James, and he determined that she should go to Portsmouth and cross over to France with their child. When he first mentioned this project to Mary Beatrice, she declared that nothing should induce her to leave him in his present distress. She told him that she was willing that the prince, her son, should be sent to France or anywhere else that was judged proper for his security. She could bear to be separated from her child with patience, but not from himself. She was determined to share his fortunes, whatever they might be. Hardships, hazards, and imprisonments, if born with him, she would prefer to the greatest ease and security in the world without him. When the king continued to urge her, she asked him, if he purposed to come away himself, for if he did, and wished to send her before to facilitate their mutual escape, she would no longer dispute his orders. James assured her that such was his intention, and she made no further opposition. The interest excited in France by the progress of this strange historic drama inspired the celebrated Count de Lazune and his friend St. Victor with the romantic determination of crossing the Channel to offer their services to the distressed King and Queen of England at this dark epoch of their fortunes when they appeared abandoned by all the world. Lazune was the husband of James's maternal cousin, Mademoiselle de Montpensier, 
and had paid the penalty of ten years imprisonment in the bastille for marrying a princess of the blood royal without the consent of louis the fourteenth saint victor was a gentleman of avignon perhaps the son of that brave lieutenant saint victor whose life king james had saved when duke of york by his personal valor at the battle of dunkirk thirty years before an idea calculated to add no slight interest to the following pages the services of these knights-errant were accepted by james as frankly as they were offered he determined to confide to them the perilous office of conveying his queen and infant son to france and they engaged the enterprise in a spirit worthy of the age of chivalry a contemporary narrative in archive au royaume de france evidently written by saint victor supplies many additional particulars connected with that eventful page of the personal history of mary beatrice and her son on the second of december says this gentleman a valet de chambre of the king named labadi husband to the queen's nurse called me by his majesty's order and made me a sign that the king was in the cabinet of the queen's chamber on entering found him alone and he did me the honor to say he had a secret to communicate to me i asked if any other persons had knowledge of it he replied yes but i should be satisfied when i know who they were he then named the queen and monsieur the count of lazun i bowed my head in token of my entire submission to his orders then he said to me i design to make the queen pass the sea next tuesday that day Turini will be on guard and the prince of wales will pass with her from portsmouth you must come here this evening with count de lazun to arrange the plan i obeyed implicitly and at eleven o'clock returned with count lazun i found the king alone he proposed several expedients and different modes of executing this design but the plan i suggested alone coincided with the ideas of his majesty this plan was pretty nearly the same that was ultimately adopted the king then told the queen that everything was prepared and she must hold herself in readiness this important secret was communicated by mary beatrice to her confessor and lady strickland and they only waited to receive an answer from lord dartmouth to the king's repeated letters touching the prince it does not appear that james meant to trust his admiral with the secret that the queen was to take shipping at the same time in the merry yacht which lay at portsmouth in readiness to receive the royal fugitives the captain of the yacht was willing to undertake the service required but when lord dover came to confer with lord dartmouth on the subject they both agreed that it was a most improper as well as impolitic step to send the heir apparent of the realm out of the kingdom without the consent of parliament and lord dartmouth had the honesty to write an earnest remonstrance to the king telling him how bad an effect it would be on his affairs i most humbly hope says he you will not exact it from me nor longer entertain so much as a thought of doing that which will give your enemies an advantage though never so falsely grounded to distrust your son's just right which you have asserted and manifested to the world in the matter of his being your real son and born of the queen by the testimonies of so many apparent witnesses pardon therefore sir if on my bended knees i beg of you to apply yourself to other counsels for the doing this looks like nothing less than despair to the degree of not only giving your enemies encouragement but distrust of your friends and people 
who i do not despair will yet stand by you in the defence and right of your lawful successor dartmouth goes on after other weighty reasons to dissuade the king from this ill-judged step to assure him that nothing less than the loss of his crown and the hazard of his majesty's personal safety and that of the queen could result from it and begs him to give orders for the prince's immediate return lest the troops of the prince of orange should be interposed between london and portsmouth this was touching the right chord james though unconvinced by the sound sense of lord dartmouth's reasoning became tremblingly anxious for the safety of his boy lord dartmouth's letter dated december third was received on monday the fourth james then changed his arrangements but not his plans he dispatched couriers to portsmouth on the wednesday with orders for lord and lady powis to bring the little prince back to whitehall they started with their precious charge at five o'clock on a dark wintry morning missed the two catholic regiments under the command of colonel clifford that were appointed to meet and escort his royal highness on the road and narrowly escaped an ambush of one hundred horse sent by the prince of orange to intercept them as they passed through a part of the new forest by taking another road and reach guilford safely on the friday night the historian of the queen's escape was sent by the king with three coaches and a detachment of the guards and dragoons to meet the prince at guilford he brought him to london by kingston and arrived at whitehall at three o'clock on the saturday morning it was saint victor says madame de sevigny who took the little prince in his cloak when it was said he was at portsmouth he had previously completed all the arrangements for the queen's passage to france and hired two yachts at gravesend one in the name of an italian lady who was about to return to her own country the other in that of count lazoon the following day december ninth was appointed for the departure of the queen and prince it was a sunday but no sabbath stillness hallowed it in the turbulent metropolis the morning was ushered in with tumults burning of the catholic chapels and houses tidings of evil import arrived from all parts of the kingdom when the evening approached the queen implored her husband to permit her to remain and share his perils he replied that it was his intention to follow her in four and twenty hours and that it was necessary for the sake of their child that she should precede him to avoid suspicion their majesties retired to bed as usual at ten o'clock about an hour after they rose and the queen commenced her preparations for her sorrowful journey about midnight saint victor dressed in the coarse habit of a seaman and armed ascended by a secret staircase to the apartment of the king bringing with him some part of the disguise which he had caused to be prepared for the queen and told the king all was ready for her majesty's departure i then pursues he retired into another room where the count de lazun and i waited till the queen was ready her majesty had meantime confided her secret to lady strickland the lady of the bedchamber who was in waiting that night as soon as the queen was attired we entered the chamber the count de lazun and i had secured some of the jewels on our persons in case of accidents although their majesties were at first opposed to it but their generous hearts were only occupied in the cares for the safety and comfort of their royal infant at two o'clock we descended by another stair answering to that from the king's cabinet leading to the apartment of madame labedi where the prince had been carried secretly some time before there all the persons assembled who were to attend on the queen and the prince 
namely the Count de Lezun, the two nurses, and myself. The king, turning to Lezun, said, with deep emotion, I confide my queen and son to your care. All must be hazarded to convey them with the utmost speed to France. Lezun, after expressing his high sense of the honor that was conferred on him, presented his hand to the queen to lead her away. She turned a parting look on the king, an eloquent but mute farewell, and followed by the two nurses with her sleeping infant, crossed the great gallery in silence, stole down the back stairs, preceded by St. Victor, who had the keys, and passing through a postern door into the privy gardens, quitted Whitehall forever. A coach was waiting at the gate, which St. Victor had borrowed of his friend, Signor Ferrici, the Florentine resident, as if it had been for his own use. On our way, pursues he, we had to pass six sentinels, who all, according to custom, cried out, Who goes there? I replied without hesitation, A friend. And when they saw that I had the master key of the gates, they allowed me to pass without opposition. The queen, with the prince, his two nurses, and the Count de Lazun, got into the coach, but to make all sure, I placed myself by the coachman on the box to direct him. We drove to Westminster and arrived safely at the place called the Horse Ferry, where I had engaged a boat to wait for me. To prevent suspicion, I had accustomed the boatman to row me across the river of a night, under pretense of a sporting expedition, taking cold provisions and a rifle with me, to give it a better color. That pretext, however, could scarcely be expected to pass current on the inclement night, when he ventured the passage of those wintry waters with the fugitive queen and her babe. It was then evidently a case of life and death, and the boatmen must have been paid accordingly, for they incurred some danger themselves. The night was wet and stormy, and so dark, continues St. Victor, that when they got into the boat, we could not see each other, though we were closely seated, for the boat was very small. Thus with literally, only one frail plank between her and eternity. Did the Queen of Great Britain cross the swollen waters of the Thames, with her tender infant of six months old in her arms, with no better attendance than his nurses, no other escort than the Count de Lezun, and the writer of this narrative who confesses, that he felt an extreme terror at the peril to which he saw personages of their importance exposed, and that his only reliance was in the mercy of God, by whose especial providence, he says, we were preserved and arrived at our destination. A curious print of the times represents the boat in danger, and the two gentlemen assisting the rowers, who were laboring against wind and tide. The queen is seated by the steersman, enveloped in a large cloak, with a hood drawn over her head. Her attitude is expressive of melancholy, and she appears anxious to conceal the little prince, who is asleep on her bosom, partially shrouded among the ample folds of her draperies. The other two females betray alarm. The engraving is crudely executed, and is printed on a coarse paper, but the design is not without merit, being bold and original in conception, and full of passion. It was probably intended as an appeal to the sympathies of the humbler classes, in behalf of the royal fugitive. Our passage, says the conductor of the enterprise, was rendered very difficult and dangerous from the violence of the wind and the heavy and incessant rain. When we reached the opposite bank of the Thames, I called aloud by name on Monsieur Duzon's, the page of the back stairs, who ought to have been there waiting for a coach and six, 
which had been engaged by Count de Lazun. The page answered promptly, but told them that the coach was still at the inn. Thither St. Victor ran to hasten it, leaving Lazun to protect the queen. Her majesty, meantime, withdrew herself and her little company under the walls of the old church at Lambeth, without any other shelter from the wind and bitter cold, or any other consolation than that the rain had ceased. On that spot, which had been rendered a site of historic interest by this affecting incident, the beautiful and unfortunate consort of the last of the Stuart kings remained standing, with her infant son fondly clasped to her bosom, during the agonizing interval of suspense caused by the delay of the coach, dreading every moment that he would awake and betray them by his cries. Her apprehension was unfounded. He had slept sweetly while they carried him, in the dead of night, from his palace nursery to the waterside. Neither wind nor rain had disturbed him, and he had felt none of the perils or difficulties of the stormy passage, and he continued wrapped in the same profound repose during this anxious pause, alike unconscious of his own reverse fortune and his mother's woe. End of section 17